You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you articles of interest culled from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 17th of February for the listening week that begins the 18th, 2023. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. I'm going to open with an opinion piece posted by the Washington Post, written by Colbert I. King. And it was posted on February 10th. My experience shows Black History Month's importance then and now. In this second week of Black History Month, Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, Democrat of D.C., and Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, reintroduced their bill to award the Congressional Gold Medal to approximately 200,000 African Americans who served with the Union Army during the Civil War. My great-grandfather, Isaiah King of New Bedford, was among them. He was a soldier with Company D of the 5th Massachusetts Colored Cavalry, having enlisted at age 17 on January 16, 1864. Those brave black soldiers served with honor in a system that paid them less than it paid white troops and under adverse conditions including the risk of enslavement and torture if captured by Confederate forces. Their valor is largely unrecognized or unappreciated. Getting a pension was another ordeal. It took great-granddaddy King 13 years to finally get his pension. With that, as a backdrop, I enter into this year's observance of Black History Month. It's a step that I take without warm feelings. Yes, I join in paying tribute to accomplished black trailblazers and their contributions to the building of America. I have been doing that since grade school in the 1940s when the celebration was conducted under the banner Negro History Week. It was important then, as it is now, to show that black contributions extend beyond the field of sports, entertainment, and military service. This country is also a commanding figure on the world stage because of the fight for human rights by the descendants of enslaved black people, a struggle that inspired independence and anti-colonialism movements around the world. What stays with me, however, is the reason for continuing to set aside a special time of the year for this observance. Renowned historian and author John Hope Franklin said Carter G. Woodson, who founded Negro History Week in 1926, always believed that the day would come when there would no longer be a need to set aside such a time, because the history of African Americans would become an integral part of American history to be observed throughout the year. Until Woodson's death in 1950, said Franklin, He continued to express hope that Negro History Week would outlive its usefulness. It hasn't, but not for the best of reasons. The observance served a necessary purpose for black youngsters in my generation. We needed to hear about the role of black people in the making of America because we were being told by white people of our day that there was nothing about us 
or our mamas and daddies, or other people who looked like us, that white people were bound to respect. And that disdain was expressed in tangible ways. I'm not talking about black experiences learned from reading a book or classroom lectures or from tales told by elders. I lived that history, that long, darkened slice of life that affected my heart and mind in ways unlikely ever to be undone. Those experiences will be with me until my dying day. Try living with knowledge that white Washingtonians have given the sanction of law to prevent black-skinned children from attending their schools and our parents, preachers, and teachers from entering their theaters and restaurants. Try growing up in a city that, by custom, denied black people the chance to try on clothes in department stores or sit at drugstore counters. Try having to tolerate a racial etiquette in which white men and white women were always addressed by Mr., Mrs., or Miss, while first-name usage was reserved for black men and women, regardless of rank, station, or age. Imagine, if you can, what it's like as a young teen looking for a job to open your morning newspapers and see job advertisements for whites only, to know that the key reason you could not work inside a bank, a department store, a downtown office building, or in a service station, drugstore, or restaurant, except for menial jobs, is that you were born black. Try knowing, even as a child and young adult, that you were receiving that kind of treatment because white people in their nation's, pardon me, in our nation's capital, wanted to instill in you a sense of inferiority. That was my world. Legalized racism is now off the books, albeit not voluntarily, but by court orders and federal laws. Few employers, store or shop owners, public school leaders, or neighborhood citizens associations of my day stopped, looked around, and said, No, nah, I don't want to do that anymore. Let's do the right thing. Law, not conscience, made the changes. Negro History Week, now Black History Month, seeks to refute racial denigration. But that observance is still needed. Pardon me. The emphasis should be. But that the observance is still needed speaks volumes about where we are as a country. To think some states are banning teaching about the impact of racial bias in the pursuit of democracy under the guise of eliminating critical race theory African-American history is American history with all its warts, period. My great-granddaddy King is a reminder of that. Next from the New York Times, Florida officials had repeated contact with College Board over African-American studies. A letter from state officials is likely to fuel controversy over the College Board, which has been accused of stripping or minimizing concepts to please conservatives. This is written by Dana Goldstein, Stephanie Saul, and Anemone, no, Anemona, Hart Collis. Forgive my mispronunciation there. And it was posted on February 9th. While the College Board was developing its first advanced placement course in African American Studies, the group was in repeated contact with the administration of Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, often discussing course concepts that the state said it found objectionable. A newly released letter shows. 
While the final course guidelines were released last week, the College Board had removed or significantly reduced the presence of many of those concepts, like intersectionality, mass incarceration, reparations, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Though it's said that political pressure played no role in the changes, Florida has announced in Jan- pardon me, that's Florida had announced in January that it would not approve the curriculum. The specifics about the discussions which occurred over the course of a year were outlined in a February 7th letter from the Florida Department of Education to the College Board. The existence of the letter was first reported by the Daily Caller, a conservative news site. A copy of the letter was posted on Scribd. The, pardon me, its authenticity was verified by a spokeswoman for the Florida Department of Education, which released a copy on Thursday. The College Board responded to the letter with one of its own, saying that Florida's concerns had not influenced any revisions to the course, which had been shaped instead by feedback from educators. The letter said, We provide states and departments of education across the country with the information they request for inclusion of courses within their systems. It added, we need to clarify that no topics were removed because they lacked educational value. We believe all the topics listed in your letter have substantial educational value. The College Board declined an interview. The discussions between the College Board and the state took place as right-wing activists across the country were increasingly taking aim at school lessons that emphasize race and racism in America. Governor DeSantis, who has presidential ambitions, has tried to cast himself as the voice of parents who are fed up with what he has called woke indoctrination from progressive educators. The back and forth between Florida and the College Board is sure to add to the controversy over the advanced placement curriculum, which has prompted a debate among academics in the fields of black studies, U.S. history, and beyond. It has also cast suspicion on the College Board, long criticized for producing exams that seem to favor white and affluent students. Supporters of the new AP course, which can yield college credit for high school students who do well, say it encourages the study of black history and culture, which have often had only a limited place in high schools. For many students, the advanced placement class could provide their first opportunity to delve into a fuller picture of black history and culture around the world, such as ancient African civilizations and African-American poetry, art, and music. Supporters see another advantage as well, saying that the class will attract black and Hispanic students who have not enrolled in AP classes as frequently as white students. But the Florida letter suggested discrepancies with the College Board's account of events and puts increasing pressure on David Coleman, the chief executive, and Trevor Packer, head of the Advanced Placement Program. They have repeatedly said there was no political interference. According to the Florida letter, the state had warned the College Board in September 2022, that it would not add the African-American Studies class to the state's course directory without revisions. The Florida letter also outlines a key November 16th meeting to air differences between the state and the College Board over the course, the AP course. 
In a meeting, the state claimed that the AP African American Studies course violated regulations requiring that, quote, instruction on required topics must be factual and objective and may not suppress or distort significant historical events. According to the state, the College Board acknowledged that the course would undergo revision while pushing back against the state's request to remove concepts like systemic marginalization, intersectionality. Nevertheless, by the time the course's final framework was released February 1st, intersectionality was listed in passing as an option, pardon me, an optional subject for the course's required final project when students choose their own area of focus. When Professor Joshua M. Myers of Africana Studies at Howard University, who served on the course's 2021 writing team, criticized the course's final version, Dr. Myers said, I think these changes are convenient. They align with the College Board's mission, which is to make the course saleable. But they do... But do they align with the mission of black studies? I don't think so. Nelva Williamson, who teaches a pilot version of the course in Houston, said she would continue to teach her students about intersectionality and reparations, even if those concepts are minimized in the AP course's official framework. She said... This is a great opportunity for students to learn to take a deep dive into the history and culture of the African diaspora. She teaches, pardon me, at the Young Women's College Preparatory Academy, a public school whose students are mainly black or Hispanic. She concluded, it's something that's much needed and much wanted. Next one is from the Washington Post. It was posted on February 5th, written by Kristen Hunt from their Retropolis section, which delves into history. Mississippi banned Sesame Street for showing black and white kids playing. In April 1970, members of Mississippi's newly formed State Commission for Educational Television met to discuss Big Bird and Cookie Monster. Sesame Street had debuted on public TV the previous November and the earliest episodes would look familiar today. Cartoons about the letter O, counting exercises with ice cream cones, and Ernie singing in the bathtub. But the all-white commission decided Mississippi was, quote, not yet ready for it, according to one member, because it showed black and white kids playing together. In a 3-2-2 vote, the commission banned Sesame Street from broadcasting on the state-run ETV network. The state has enough problems to face up to without adding to them. An anonymous member of the commission, which was appointed by segregationist Governor John Bell Williams, Democrat, told the Associated Press, none of the board members, pardon me, none of the board's members would speak on the record about the ban. The commission worried about sinking its fledgling system just as it was launching. At the time, ETV operated only one channel near Jackson, but it had plans to expand statewide after securing hard-won funding. funding pardon me. It was allegedly spooked by state lawmakers who had objected to educational programs promoting integration and could meddle with the commission's funding. Some had already objected to ETV's 
$5.3 million appropriation in the state budget. I think it's a tragedy for both the white and black children of Mississippi. Joan Gantz Cooney, a television producer who co-created Sesame Street, told the AP Press, Sesame Street had landed in a bleak landscape for children's TV. Saturday morning cartoons were big business thanks to ads for sugary breakfast cereals, but during the week, kids were mostly stuck with reruns of a lot of junk, as Gans Cooney put it. Still, children were clearly drawn to television and hungry for more. Lloyd Morissette, one of the co-creators of Sesame Street, noticed that his young daughter watched test patterns on their television, waiting for something to come on. When kids' TV first started out, it was mostly old cartoons with hosts, said Linda Siminski, a visiting professor of media studies at the University of Pennsylvania and former head of content for PBS Kids. She said, and these hosts, in the middle of their hosting duties, would start selling bread. She said that among TV executives, there was sort of this general feeling that kids would watch anything that looks like it's for kids, and they didn't want to spend a lot of money. In the 1960s, these shows rarely had diverse casts of black, brown, and white kids. There were exceptions at the local level. Ron Simon, head curator at the Paley Center for Media, points to New York's Wonderama as an example of a show making a conscious effort of integrating. But nationally, the landscape was mostly white. It was still so rare to see black actors of any age on television that Jet Magazine published a page of radio and TV appearances by black entertainers each week, from Eartha Kitt on Mission Impossible to Sammy Davis Jr. on The Hollywood Palace. Sesame Street not only wanted to teach children through educational programming they'd actually enjoy, it wanted to specifically target kids from low-income families who were entering school at a disadvantage. The show was designed with this audience in mind, from the research and writing to the casting. In addition to many of Jim Henson's Muppets, Sesame Street featured human characters like Bob and Mr. Hooper, both white men, and Gordon and Susan, a married black couple. Children of all races roamed Sesame Street, which was modeled largely on real-life blocks in New York's Harlem, Upper West Side, and the Bronx, a choice the creators hoped would impart positive changes, pardon me, that's positive images of integration, and give each child watching a chance to see people who looked like them on screen. But first they had to hear about it, Gans Cooney stationed outreach coordinators in different parts of the country to make sure the show was recognizable and accessible to as many children as possible. That outreach, combined with $4 million in funding from the Lyndon B. Johnson administration and another $4 million in private grants, meant there was a, quote, lot of goodwill surrounding the show when it began hitting local affiliates in November 1969 said David Camp, author of Sunny Days, the Children's Television Revolution that Changed America. Sesame Street received rave reviews from public luminaries like Jesse Jackson and Orson Welles, as well as many parents who wrote to newspapers to heap praise on the show. My two-year-old, who can barely talk, is running around the house identifying letters like H and W and numbers like 9 and 3, 
since he's been watching Sesame Street, wrote a Los Angeles Times reader from Glendale, Arizona. And then there was Mississippi. In fairness, the state was likely not alone in its reluctance to broadcast interracial friendships. When KTAL in Shreveport dropped Sesame Street in its second season, claiming it didn't have the money to air it, a fan wrote to Time, the ostensible reason was that the show was too expensive, actually it was too black. In the aftermath of the Mississippi decision, letters poured into ETV protesting the ban. There will always be people in Mississippi and across the nation who will find an integrated show, pardon me, an integrated television cast offensive, read one letter printed by United Press International. But there are probably more conscientious parents who will put the education of their children ahead of their personal prejudices, and these people should not be denied a choice. WDAM, a local station based in Laurel, Mississippi, urged the commission to reverse the vote and offered to air Sesame Street itself if ETV wouldn't. The board was doubtless embarrassed by the attention, not expecting its, quote, postponement of the show, as members characterized it, to make news across the country, parentheses, the Albuquerque Journal, for example, called the decision a crying shame, swiping at Mississippi's education levels, which lagged behind other states. Camp said, that was kind of a spasm of the old ethos. I think most of the country, even in the South, was trending in the other direction. ETV scrambled to lift the ban, promising viewers on May 23rd that Sesame Street would air in a matter of weeks. The show appeared on local TV listings by June 8th, and that fall, the board sponsored a special episode. As part of a 14-city national tour, the cast of Sesame Street stopped by Jackson for a live, free show on September 6th, presented in cooperation with the State Commission for Educational Television. Over the course of an hour, Big Bird and his friends Bob, Susan, Gordon, and Mr. Hooper entertained families with songs, jokes, and questions encouraging audience participation. It was not quite an apology, but a display of an uneasy alliance between a progressive show and a conservative board, all in front of an integrated crowd of ecstatic children. Switching now to theroot.com for some current events. State Rep. Justin J. Pearson told by GOP to, quote, explore a different career after wearing a dashiki on House floor. The Tennessee House GOP really tried it, but Pearson refuses to back down. This was published on the 14th, written by Candace McDuffie. The Tennessee House GOP didn't hide their disdain for freshman Democratic State Representative Justin J. Pearson after he wore a dashiki on the House floor. Their advice to him, get in line or leave his position. Pearson, who was a Route 100 honoree in 2022, wore the traditional West African garb in the chamber last week as he was being sworn into the Tennessee General Assembly. Apparently, the GOP couldn't wait to comment on his attire, and shortly thereafter, Pearson tweeted about it. He said, 
We literally just got on the state house floor and already a white supremacist has attacked my wearing of my dashiki. Resistance and subversion to the status quo ought to make some people uncomfortable. Thank you to every black ancestor who made this opportunity possible. The Tennessee House GOP Twitter account immediately replied with this, referencing the bipartisan and unanimously approved rules for house decorum and dress attire is far from a racist attack. If you don't like rules, perhaps you should explore a different career opportunity that's main purpose is not creating them. However, the exchange prompted Tennessee-based network Action News 5 to look into the exchange only to discover there is no formal written rule about appropriate attire. According to Speaker Cameron Sexton, the baseline is for men to wear a suit and tie, but as Speaker he can change that rule. Speaker Sexton told the station this, The House Clerk has sent Representative Pearson the information he requested earlier today. During her historic tenure in the General Assembly, the late Lois DeBerry established a precedent for attire that remains in place today. Men must wear a coat and tie if they wish to be recognized in committee or on the House floor. Ms. DeBerry would frequently address members violating this precedent and remind them of the requirement. The Speaker will continue to follow the precedent and the path established by Ms. DeBerry to honor her and her incredible legacy within our legislative body. Pearson stated, however, that he will continue to honor his ancestors. I've been wearing suits since I was eight years old, he said. It's not a problem with wearing suits. There is a problem with upholding systems that tell people what is wrong and what is right, based on what is considered normal, and, in this status quo, what is considered normal is what is white. This next one written by Keith Reed. The next few are still reading from theroot.com. Nobody is talking about the four black students shot in Pittsburgh this week. Michigan State University didn't have the only mass shooting these last few days. America's most famous mass shooting this week was Monday's killing of three students and wounding of five others at Michigan State University, another in the country's long, bloody, and entirely unnecessary history of mass murder with high-powered guns. The Michigan State murders were tragic, needless, and enraging. But depending on which of the varied definitions of mass shootings you follow, it wasn't the only one in the past few days. It wasn't even the only one at a school. On Tuesday, four students were shot as they left Westinghouse Academy a high school in Pittsburgh's Homewood neighborhood at the end of the school day. All four survived and are expected to recover. No suspects or motive have been named, and the remainder of Westinghouse's students have been learning remotely ever since. I'll tell you up front about my personal connection to Westinghouse. I graduated from the school in 1995 when Pittsburgh, Homewood specifically, was in one of its most violent eras. Several times while I was a student there, I had classmates who were either wounded or shot to death. Even in the midst of that violence, there was never an actual mass shooting at or near the school. 
which makes me question, among other things, how it is that such a story hasn't made national headlines. Yes, school shootings are an unfortunately common occurrence in 2023, but four students shot at once in front of a high school in a major city on a random Tuesday is the kind of thing that usually gets at least a mention in the national press. But if I'm guessing right, unless you live in Pittsburgh, you were today years old the first time you heard of this particular episode, and I'll venture another guess as to why that is. Because when gun violence, even at scale, happens in poor black communities, most media and politicians treat it differently than when it happens in middle-class or wealthy white ones. That's a broad generalization with notable exceptions. The Uvalde massacre, for example, happened in a majority Hispanic community where median household income is just above 46000 a year. But the violence there, 21 dead, including 19 elementary school children, and the tales of gross incompetence by local police made that story an impo- pardon me, made that a story that was impossible regardless of where it had happened. The students shot Tuesday were exiting Westinghouse into one of Pittsburgh's blackest, poorest, and most violent neighborhoods, a stark distinction in a city where data has already spelled out racial equity outcomes that rank quality of life near the bottom among American cities for its black residents. At large, being a predominantly black neighborhood doesn't make a community inherently poor or violent, although in Pittsburgh and elsewhere, poverty and violence do closely track historical patterns of segregation and disinvestment. What also closely mirrors those patterns is the casualness with which instances of violence are treated by media and sometimes even local officials. It's hard to believe, for instance, that had four four teenagers been shot leaving school in one of Pittsburgh's wealthier, whiter suburbs, say Mount Lebanon, a borough of roughly 33,000 that's 90% white, with a median income of more than $107,000, that the story wouldn't have drawn more interest and inquiry. The question we should all be asking is why mass shootings are tolerated anywhere for any reason, and it's worth asking every single time it happens. Next one is written by Crystal Brent Zook, posted on February 7th. Soul Survivors, COVID-19 and the Black Church. Our special report on how churches took action to serve their flocks in the wake of a devastating pandemic. A Dark Day. When COVID-19 first came barreling through the United States in March 2020, Its impact on black churches was nothing short of catastrophic. It was a dark day, said Dr. W. Franklin Richardson, chairman of the Conference of National Black Churches. He went on, Churches were empty, people lost their jobs, people were dying, and there were no funeral services. As pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Mount Vernon, New York, Richardson felt the effects acutely on a personal level as he received as many as six grief calls a day from parishioners. 
We had to scramble to stay alive and to keep things going, agreed Reverend J. Edgar Boyd, senior minister at First African Methodist Episcopal Church, FAME, the oldest African-American church in Los Angeles. Many wondered if the church would ever be back, and if it did return, would it be the same? Now, looking back, it's clear that the black church as an institution has been radically transformed over the last three years. Not only has it survived, but it has thrived. Many now say they can see light again, as so many houses of worship across the country have learned to expand and grow in ways they couldn't possibly have foreseen before the pandemic. The church never stopped being the church because you had to leave the building, explained Richardson. Instead, the era of COVID-19 became a time for reimagining. And reimagine it did. A new beginning. Before the pandemic, only a fraction of black churches nationwide had any kind of digital capacity. Of the 30,000 member churches represented by the conference, said Richardson, only about 500 were streaming when COVID-19 hit. Most were forced to close completely, only re-emerging months later after finding ways to pivot and reinvent themselves. Richardson said, Unless you were a church that already was doing something virtually, it took time to become competent. There was a huge financial investment required, and new skills had to be learned, not only by the congregation, but also by those in the pulpit. During those early months, church often took place in smaller groups by phone and on conference calls, said Richardson, until eventually video streaming and Zoom meetings became the norm. Some pastors scrambled to offer services from their phones and iPads. Budgets shifted dramatically because of lost income. Many staff members were laid off to make room for experts skilled in digital technology. One pastor began referring to TGIF as Twitter, Google, Instagram, and Facebook Day as the church's whole outlook shifted to digital. COVID pushed online attendance forward by quantum leaps, said Charles Blake II, co-pastor at West Angeles Church of God in Christ in Los Angeles. Some churches were already famously online, he added, like Bishop T.J., pardon me, T.D., pardon me again, T.D. Jakes in Dallas, Texas, whose messages were heard via weekly television and radio broadcasts. However, most churches weren't at all prepared for the digital shift. Blake, too, was challenged to pivot and reinvent. In December 2020, he posted a sermon on YouTube called, This Church Has Left the Building. In it, he stands outside in the open air against a classic backdrop of Los Angeles palm trees. The message begins by acknowledging the pain his pe parishioners are experiencing after, quote, nine months of not being able to come together as the Assembly of the Saints, Nine months of not being able to share each other's pain and bear each other's burdens. From there, however, he quickly moves on to his main message. The church must redefine itself, he says. The church is you and me, not the building it's housed in. The church is us. Today, West Angeles has more than 90,000 YouTube subscribers, a significant increase from its in-person reach which fluctuated between twenty to 24,000 
during pre-COVID years. Something lost, something found. We had to learn a whole new way to do ministry, said Bishop Kenneth Ulmer of Faithful Central Bible Church in Inglewood, California. As anyone who has ever attended an African-American service or movie theater knows, the black church maintains the cultural specificity of long-held African roots and traditions, such as call and response, a mode of interaction whereby the congregation answers aloud to whoever is speaking from the pulpit. Ulmer asks, Well, what if there's nobody to respond? What are you going to do? I know some guys who struggled with that psychologically, and looking into the camera, I struggled with it myself. Because for so long, we were pitching into the wind. You don't know what's out there. I don't know if anyone is home listening. Others had a different take. Call and response is nice, said Ricky Temple, senior pastor at Overcoming by Faith Ministries in Savannah, Georgia. He went on, I was trained to preach that way. It's a nice cultural experience. But, to be honest about it, that's not the foundation. You don't have teachers saying one plus one and the students saying two. That's not how you learn math, and that's not how you learn scripture long term. Temple's ministry, which began its digital shift way back in 2007, was one of the few prepared to go fully online when COVID-19 hit. Temple said, I realized that digital was even more effective than television. You could be more specific, and it didn't cost as much money. What's more, Temple discovered a critical new benefit. His congregation gave 30% more money when tithing digitally. I used to tell them, Please go home and put your pajamas on and give, he said, laughing. A different kind of sermon. Pastors across the country struggled with the new digital universe. Sermons had to be shortened, for example, to reflect the shorter online attention span. Two and a half hours of preaching had to be slashed to under 30 minutes. And there were theological questions, too. How could the church recommend online worship when a physical presence had been a part of biblical doctrine? Reverend Ulmer said, We would often say a passage out of the book of Hebrews, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. This meant, come to church. And then we said, don't come to church. And now we're saying, come back. Congregants are saying, well now, what do you want us to do? But many have had no problem answering that question for themselves, as only about a third of attendees have returned to in-person services as of August 2022. They found that, quote, they can do Jesus with a cup of coffee and house shoes, said Ulmer. Why get up and put on your clothes and put on your hair and put on your makeup when you can do it at home? Temple agrees. Think of all the energy it takes to go to a church service. It takes an hour and a half to get dressed and go to church. You stay there for two and a half plus hours to talk. Then it's an hour to get home. That's a five-hour commitment for one service, and then you've got to come back Wednesday night. It's a killer. He adds, at one point we were having 28 services a month. The benefits of digital are hard to deny. At one time, at the height of the pandemic, Ulmer estimates that his church would brought was broadcasting online to as many as 63 different countries from Canada to South Africa. He said, we reached a whole new audience. 
which raises yet another critical theological question, said Ulmer. We're not called to make viewers, we're called to make disciples. So how do you do that in this hybrid culture? We don't know. So there's another learning curve that's coming. The human touch. But is connectivity the same as being in community, some ask. After all, following someone online can never be the same as a hug or a smile. That's the downside, said Ulmer. The sacrifice of intimacy and relationship. The hybrid model means that we will often miss greeting someone before and after the service, looking a friend in the eyes and asking, How have you been doing? Pastor Boyd of Fame acknowledges that some people actually need a hug from their pastor because they see a pastor as being the connection between them and God. A hug from their pastor on Sunday morning was the psychological, emotional fuel that got them through the week. Some seniors have felt the shifts acutely. Before COVID-19, one parishioner had repeatedly complained to her pastor, asking him to tell these children to stop looking on these telephones in the middle of the service, not realizing that they were looking at Bible apps on the phone. Now that same woman has a plethora of her own social media accounts, such as Facebook and Instagram, but others have struggled. For as much as the church does outreach and sends help, some have given away laptops and iPads to seniors in need, there are always going to be those who feel isolated, those with medical issues who must remain at home, and forever, whatever reason, are not connected. Temple agrees, but with caveats. I don't know that people define human contact the same way anymore, he said. I think we want to define it that way, but when's the last time you went to the bank, stood in line, and transferred money? Although his ministry still offers in-person Sunday services as well as digital, along with outdoor family days and carnival rides and food trucks, he said, I think people define things differently now. We evolve and grow. Jesus said, go out into the world. Digital allows you to do that. What's ahead? Said Pastor Boyd of fame. We're expanding. We're coming back. We won't be totally back, but we'll be different back. And we'll use that difference to make certain that we reach the people and provide the ministries we've always provided. The pandemic has brought some real challenges, but it's helped us to engage and expand and to do ministry much more effectively and efficiently than we did pre-pandemic. By now, it has become crystal clear to everyone that the black church is desperately needed during times of crisis and beyond. Pastor Boyd of Fame said, We are still here and still doing ministry. We are still very much alive. Next, you'll be hearing a little bit more from an article I began last week, which comes from Lion's Roar, Buddhist Wisdom for Our Time. We remember six remarkable black Buddhists. And I only have time each week for one or two of these. A quick bit from the introduction. Maybe this Black History Month we can ask ourselves, with our eyes looking back, our feet facing forward, and our body in the present moment, why are we so attached to a sanitized past? And let the answers flow without judgment. 
Celebrating Black History Month must also include rejoicing in people who defied negative racialized stereotypes. History, if taught and taught factually, can protect future generations from repeating that history. We've invited six practitioners from different traditions to reflect on a black Buddhist ancestor in their tradition. All of these ancestors are rather recent. Some are hidden figures to most readers. By paying homage to these black Buddhist ancestors, we transgress the wave of ignorance and erasure. Last week we read about Dr. Marlena Jones. This week I'll read about Alvin Sykes. This is written by Dr. Kamala Majid. How can Buddhism help someone who has endured deep suffering live in a way that brings justice to the lives of countless people? The life of prominent Buddhist activist Alvin Sykes offers a resounding answer to that question. He was born in 1956 amidst brutally enforced racial segregation in Kansas City, Missouri. The difficulties in his early life included his 14-year-old birth mother conceiving him in rape and his growing up in a group home, having epilepsy, and experiencing sexual assault himself. At age 18, Sykes began practicing Nichiren Buddhism with the Soka Gakkai International SGI after he was introduced to the practice by his good friend, renowned jazz musician Herbie Hancock. In the SGI, Sykes learned the practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo to surface one's inter- inner wisdom, courage, and compassion in order to transform the painful circumstances of one's life into something that creates value for oneself and others. This concept is known as human revolution. Sykes was determined to address the violent racism affecting black people and the lack of consequences for the offenders. In 1980, Sykes's dear friend and noted saxophonist Steve Harvey was murdered, and the murderer was promptly acquitted by an all-white jury. Sykes chanted about this and, with Hancock's encouragement, decided to do something about it. He had no collegiate or formal education, but he didn't let this stop him. Sykes pored over law books in the Kansas City Library until he found a statute that could be used to reopen the case. Because of his relentless efforts, Harvey's murderer was sentenced to federal prison and is still serving one of the longest sentences ever given for a civil rights violation. This was just the beginning. Sykes went on to conduct more investigations into murders of African Americans that occurred throughout the 60s. Because of his decades of dogged labor, self-guided scholarship, and advocacy, The Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act was enacted into federal law in 2008. Sykes continued to advocate for victims even after being partially paralyzed from an injury in 2019. In a wheelchair, he said, I am going to roll my way to justice. Unable to grip a pen, 
He used his voice and successfully advocated for legislation abolishing statutes of limitation on childhood sexual abuse. Alvin Sykes epitomized what it means to take enlightened action in the service of others until the last days of his life. As we offer praise and blessings to his eternal life force, let us allow his example to guide us as we cultivate compassion, wisdom, and courage to positively impact all beings and the world we share. The next article comes from the Colorado Sun. It was posted February 9th, written by Tatiana Flowers. Colorado's ski industry is seeing growing interest in uphilling from an unlikely demographic. More than 220 people dove into uphill skiing at the National Brotherhood of Skiers' 50th Annual Summit in Vail, which promotes diversity in winter sports. Dateline Vail. Ski instructor Gerald Coleman skied up a hill, not down, for the second time ever during the National Brotherhood of Skiers' Summit and called the experience invigorating. It's part mental and part physical, and I would say even spiritual, expanding and going beyond the confines of the resort, and that is what I'm looking for, said Coleman, who teaches skiing at Smuggler's Notch Resort in Vermont. He found the uphill clinic he participated in on Tuesday morning helpful as it trained him to hike about half a mile up part of the Golden Peak race course on skis, earning his turns back down the hill at Vale. It was useful, he said, to learn about avalanche mitigation and the gear needed to venture beyond ski area boundaries and ski freely on public land. For people of color, the idea of skiing at resorts can seem foreign, with white skiers accounting for a vast majority of the sport's participants, but venturing into the backcountry on untracked terrain can seem even more unfamiliar. The National Brotherhood of Skiers Summit works to expose more people of color to skiing and snowboarding each year, introducing more people of color to ski, touring, and backcountry travel, is important because it creates access to a niche sport that many people don't even know is available to them, said instructors at the summit. More than 220 people signed up for uphill clinics and gear demos offered during the week at the National Brotherhood of Skiers 50th Anniversary Summit in Vail. That was up from about 40 who showed up for clinics and backcountry tours during the summit last year in Aspen. The ski industry is supporting the surge in interest with special clinics for women, introductions to telemark and backcountry skiing, and demos of sports, snow sports gear. Uphilling is one of the fastest growing co corners pardon me, of the snow sports industry. But just as resort leaders are working hard to diversify downhill skiing, they're trying to attract more people of color and younger participants to uphilling and backcountry to increase vitality in snow sports. The industry needs to make sure that when we look at how we're becoming more inclusive and more equitable and more diverse, that we approach folks who participate in uphilling with the same welcoming mindset, said Jack Plack, Senior Communications Manager for Vail Mountain and Beaver Creek Resort. Uphilling used to be a skill of necessity. 
Skiing began thousands of years ago not for the thrill of racing down slopes, but as a mode of wintertime transportation across frozen wetlands and marshes while ancient humans hunted for food. Centuries ago, early skiers placed animal skins underneath their skis for better traction, to help glide forward and avoid sliding back downhill in snowy conditions. Now people use a synthetic material, also called skins, placed underneath the skis or the split board. When they finish their ascent of the mountain, the skins are removed and the participants ski or snowboard down. Uphilling is safer when it occurs at a ski resort, but is more dangerous if it takes place in avalanche terrain, said Michael, a backcountry big mountain telemark skier living in Colorado, who is working to expose more people of color to uphilling at ski resorts and eventually backcountry skiing outside of resorts. Pardon me, He said, I would argue that 90% of the time when someone dies in an avalanche, they're white, but it's only a matter of time that someone from our group has that misfortune. I try to be safe about it, and I try to teach people safety. Access to uphilling and the cardio exercise that comes with it also increases mental and physical wellness, especially beneficial for black people who have higher rates of diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease, he said. Russell asked, why aren't black people doing this? Why don't they hear about it? Well, the whole setup for gear is like $3,000, and that's just for your equipment. And all that training I took took thousands of dollars. They're $600 to $800 a pop for trainings and certifications all to keep you alive. He said, I find with our culture it's black or white. Either people are like, oh, hell no, I'm not hiking. I bought a lift ticket, not a hike ticket. Or people are like, man, I love this idea. Russell's encouraging participation from people who aren't fond of the hiking portion of the uphilling. Over the past 15 years, Russell and a group of other black people have been chasing a goal of backcountry skiing, 14,000-foot peak mountains on every continent, Russell has already ticked North America, South America, Asia, and Europe off of his list. And Bryce Barnes of Maine, who is part of a nonprofit called Inclusive Ski Touring, aimed at getting people in underserved communities to uphill ski and splitboard, was helping to teach an uphill clinic in Vail on Tuesday morning and said, a lot of opportunity has been missed over the years with people of color being excluded from almost all points of outdoor conduct, pardon me, outdoor contact. He said, every day, I hope that there's more black people out here because it's incredible being out here. And any time I do see anybody of color out in the back country, it just lights me right up. And that one brings us to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the William O'Rourke Foundation, providing financial support to organizations devoted to promoting vision services. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at 
www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.